Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, you can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here, hanging out with Fernando. Hi, Ben. Hey, Fernando. And hanging out with Travis Irvine. Hello, Ben. What's up, boys? We have a fantastic episode for y'all today. We speak with Bob Kendrick. This story is absolutely fantastic it is the baseball playoffs so we figured tonight (laughs) might be a great time or today might be a great time to talk a little bit about politics when it comes to sport Mm -hmm. specifically in this case baseball bob kendrick has a podcast called black diamonds check that out Uh, he is also the president of the negro leagues baseball museum in kansas city This conversation, we talk about uh, the Negro League starting in the 1920s, uh, going on into the 40s, and obviously getting into integration with Jackie Robinson. But there is so much to talk about and unpack here when it comes to the larger social perspective of what it meant when baseball desegregated and how important it was for civil rights going forward, and in many ways how – Obviously, the struggle it continues. Uh, progress continues um, to be a slow slog, although it is occurring, which we can all be very thankful for in some aspects. We focus about criminal justice. We focus on all of those things on this show. And you really can't have those conversations without understanding how important sport was right. when it comes to the larger conversation of um, – African-Americans being seen as equal in this country. Absolutely. Yeah. It was highlighted uh, back in August with our conversation with Ken Burns about yep. Muhammad Ali. And th- yeah, this conversation with Bob is is absolutely fascinating. Sports really did for, you know, lack of a better way in America, push the needle on civil rights because African-American athletes came in and were able to play so much better than the white athletes. <laughs> in some cases, indeed. Often than not. Absolutely. And of course, when it comes to equality, it's about having the opportunity, the same opportunity across the board. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to have in this country. And uh, again, hopefully we are getting there slowly, but surely. But uh, Fernando, what did you think? Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. So I love that when we talk to people like Ken Burns or Mr. Kendrick today, uh, you just, you really see... what you're talking about how every little step mattered every tiny Mm -hmm. little step seemed like nothing in but in the future 20 years 30 years 100 years in the future game changing literally absolutely all right so enjoy this interview with bob kendrick i think you are going to love it be interested and again check out his podcast black diamonds um because i think the man he's a he's a great order which is probably why he runs a museum oh (laughs) all right Okay, everyone, enjoy this conversation with Bob Kendrick. All right, everyone, now it is time for our interview 
with the president of the Negro League Museum in Missouri. Uh, This man has worked tirelessly to keep the memory alive of these fantastic athletes and uh, American heroes that are not discussed enough. So we are honored to have with us Bob Kendricks. Thanks so much for being on the show, Bob. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. So, you know, we talk a lot in this country about history, and there's a, a lot of history that uh, that has been a firestorm, to say the least, when it comes to uh, whether it be people protesting against or in favor of, whatever it might be. But one of the things we can all agree when it comes to American history is that there are aspects that are not being discussed enough that show just how incredible people of this country can be. And I believe that's one of the things that you show when it comes to the Negro League Baseball Museum. Could you tell our audience a little bit about why this is such an important uh, passion for you? And Mm -hmm. what do you want us to all learn uh, from this museum? It it is such a special place, guys. It, It really is because for me, the Negro League embodies the American spirit unlike any story in the annals of American history. This is a story about pride, about Mm. passion, about perseverance, about determination, Mm. about the refusal to accept the notion that you're unfit to do anything. Mm -hmm. So you won't let me play with you in the major leagues? Okay, I'll create a league of my own. Right. That league, the Negro Leagues, formed right here in Kansas City in 1920. 101 years ago, literally a stone's throw from my office where I'm recording this interview with you all, the Paseo YMCA was formed there in 1920 by Andrew Rube Foster. Those leagues would then operate amazingly for 40 years, from 1920 until 1960. So can you give us a little bit of history on, um, first of all, I mean, it's just completely, I suppose if you look at modern times as well with you know, certain issues, maybe it's not completely unfathomable, uh, but the idea that sports as a meritocracy were not always that way. And I feel like that's one of the reasons I personally love sports is because I do believe stats don't lie. Gameplay doesn't lie. Like if you're good enough, you're good enough. Scoreboard. Scoreboard, you know what I'm saying? So can you talk a little bit about what was the country and what was the the mood when it comes to athletics and sports and and, uh, specifically in this case, black men? And um, just how was that wall put up that they uh, were not allowed to to play in Major League Baseball? And can you yeah. just give us a little bit of a, a setting for that time period? Yeah, well, you know, we as black folks have been playing baseball for a long time. There were evidences of us playing even as enslaved people. And uh, black professional baseball teams have been around for a long time. They were independent and to some degree haphazard. And so it was only in 1920 that it got a truly organized structure put in place. But again, as you know, and and your listeners well know, this country was segregated. Mm -hmm. And so black and brown baseball players simply were not allowed to play in the major leagues because of a gentleman's agreement. (laughs) It always strikes me, guys, there was no written doctrine It was just a verbalized (laughs) agreement amongst players, managers, and owners that essentially said, if you allow a black to play with you, you can't play with us. This was spearheaded by a guy named Adrian Cap Anson. Cap Anson was an outstanding baseball player, is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Hmm. And, And he basically led this gentleman's agreement 
which really wasn't that doggone gentlemanly. It really right. wasn't. But basically, a guy named Moses Fleetwood Walker was playing in what we would now consider to be the major leagues well before Jackie Robinson. This is six decades before Jackie Robinson, late 1880s. And Moses Fleetwood Walker basically got exiled from this league by this quote-unquote gentleman's agreement. Essentially, they were saying, well, we don't want anything to happen to him. Moses Fleetwood Walker, believe it or not, was a barehanded catcher. Oh, my yeah, God. He was a barehanded catcher. What? <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, it didn't last very long before they <laughs> kicked him out because they didn't want anything to happen to him. And that would basically ban blacks from playing on, quote-unquote, white professional baseball teams or major league teams for the next six decades until Jackie Robinson would essentially re-break the color barrier in what we now deem to be the modern era of Major League Baseball. So you mentioned that's around the early 1900s then when this uh, when this fellow was then ousted. And then it took, so then at this point, was there optimism? Did you feel, or did you feel, are you a thousand years old? Do <laughs> well, you feel? Some days I feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like there may have been optimism within the black community until this point where there was like, oh, okay, we got a dude in there. He's a barehanded catcher. If that doesn't prove uh, the toughness of this person, I don't know what would. Um, do you feel like there was maybe a sense of like, okay, we're close. And then all of a sudden the door slammed shut. I, I don't know if it was as much that time because it was so, so short lived. Mm. It, it was so short lived and it didn't get the same level of press coverage that we got when Jackie broke the color right. barrier. So I think for the African-American community, when Jackie breaks the color barrier, that's when that optimism of the possibilities of black and brown players now moving into the major leagues, this became real. Because really, fellas, I think up until then, I don't think the Negro League players were ever even remotely thinking about playing in the major leagues. It was just a pipe dream. Now, mm. when we get to the 40s, there were these spatterings of possibilities. Some guys, they had been scouting this black talent for quite some time. Mm -hmm. The question was, who was going to be bold enough to pull the trigger right. and try and make this happen? And, and as we know, it would eventually be Branch Rickey, but essentially the stars aligned for Branch Rickey to do this. And, and so timing is of the essence in virtually everything, and it was with the eventual integration of the game and Jackie Robinson leaving the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro Leagues. And, and mm. a lot of folks had no idea that Jackie's illustrious professional baseball career began in the Negro Leagues right. with the Kansas City Monarchs in 1945. I think they think Jackie just walked out of nowhere and started <laughs> playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers, but his real rookie season was indeed 1945. And guys, the year that he spent in Kansas City, he fell in love with everything that Kansas City is famous for, <laughs> barbecue mm -hmm. and jazz. Oh, yeah, he man. liked the ribs at a place here called, at then called Old Kentuck Barbecue, would mm. become the forerunner for the world-renowned Gates barbecue chain of restaurants that people love here in Kansas City. I could talk to you about barbecue all day. <laughs> I can <laughs> sit no, here. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he fell in love with jazz. And while wow. New Orleans may lay claim to jazz, it was Kansas City that gave Jazz his soul. And by the end of the 1945 season, he was gone. He had literally disappeared 
his monarch teammates had no idea where he was. Well, as we know, he was meeting with Branch Rickey, and the two of them would make that monumental move to break baseball's color barrier and, in essence, jettison the civil rights movement in this country. And we definitely will get to how sports impacted the civil rights movement because, again, talk about meritocracy. I feel like sports are a little bit under uh, appreciated in some ways when it comes to how unbelievably powerful they were when it comes to um, getting some semblance of representation in this country, as, of course, many of the barriers um, we still have, but God knows they were much larger uh, back then in many ways. But when it comes to the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s Negro Leagues, uh, my question when it comes to Jackie Robinson, was there any uh, hesitation when Jackie went to go join the major leagues? Did they feel as if, and I'm talking about the Negro League here, did they feel as if we ushered in all of this talent. We created all of this talent. And now all of a sudden, a large entity that excluded us for many, many years is just going to come and pluck our best players out. Yeah. Was there any sense of like, well, all right, thanks for freaking nothing. And uh, <laughs> I guess now you're just going to take our greatest players and give uh, no one else anything. Was, was there any kind of strange resentment because of that? Of course there was. Because you got to understand, for those black owners of those teams, this was their livelihood. Right. So I tell the story oftentimes because people will say that the Dodgers signed Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. Mm -hmm. No, they didn't. They took Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs, mm -hmm. a player who was absolutely under contract, and uh, but the owner of the Monarchs could not fight back. You know why? Why? Because he was white. J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Kansas City Monarchs, was one of the few white owners in black baseball. Okay. And was the only white owner of the original eight Negro League franchises established here in Kansas City in 1920, the great Kansas City Monarchs. Here's a man who made his entire living in black baseball. So there, and I think Branch Rickey shrewdly understood that there was no way that this white man could stand up and block what virtually every black person in America had been waiting for, for a black man to play in the major leagues. He was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. Right. Because that black fan base that had been so loyal to the monarchs, they would have assuredly turned their backs on him the minute that he found, they found out that he stood in the way mm. of this black man playing in the major leagues. Now, Wilkie, as we called him, he wouldn't have been protesting black man playing in the major leagues. He was protesting that this black man that you're going to take away from me, you're going to put me out of business. Right. And he was absolutely right. He sold his interest to his business partner. He sold his interest in the monarch to his business partner the year after Jackie takes the field because it wasn't a matter of if the Negro Leagues were going to fold. It was simply a matter of when would they fold. And so he got out before the business of black baseball died. That was what the other owners were up against as well. And, and so for the players, they saw an opportunity because you got to understand this, no matter how successful the Negro Leagues had been, and they had been tremendously successful. Yeah. We're talking about some of the greatest athletes to ever play this game. 
But no matter how good they were, the world was still saying the best baseball being played in the major leagues. Now, the Negro Leaguers themselves didn't necessarily agree with that. They knew how good they were, mm -hmm. and they knew how great their league was. And quite frankly, the major leaguers knew how good they were. They played countless exhibition games against one another. Mm. But here now you have an opportunity to make a better living because I tell people fundamentally, there's really only one thing that separated the Negro Leagues from the major leagues, money. Right. The major leagues had more money. So now you're talking about afforded a better lifestyle, an mm -hmm. opportunity to earn more money, to take care of your family by making this move. But there's no question that the integration of our game put the Negro Leagues out of business. And mm. it put a lot of Black and Hispanic ballplayers out of work. They would mm. now have to go back to Canada or to those Spanish-speaking countries if they were going to resume their pro careers because there simply just wasn't enough room in the major leagues for even those very talented ballplayers. So you now we're talking about a quota system initially. Mm -hmm. They bring a Black player up. Then they bring another one so that he wouldn't be so isolated. But there was absolutely a quota system in place with the exception of the Dodgers. The Dodgers were very aggressive in signing black talent. The National League was even more aggressive than the American League. The American League was very slow. They yeah. were in complete resistance of this movement. And that's why you see teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox at the tail end of integration. But the other side of this story is a lot of those teams were in no hurry to see integration and they didn't have anything to do with race. It had everything to do with business. Right. The New York Yankees were making money off the Negro Leagues. I tell people all the time, guys, anytime they say it ain't about the money, it is always about the money. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and the is. Yankees were making money off the Negro Leagues. We, had, we were able to acquire a set of letters. Well, actually, it's one letter. It's about a four-page letter. Okay. That was written by former managing partner of the Yankees, Larry McPhail. And the letter is from 1945. And at that time, New York Mayor LaGuardia and others were putting can, pressure He needs on, to fix his freaking airport. <laughs> That's all I know about Mr. LaGuardia. <laughs> and they were putting pressure on Major League Baseball to examine its hiring practices and putting pressure on the Yankees to be at the forefront of this movement. Right. Well, MacPhail writes this letter to Mayor LaGuardia. And within the body of the letter, he outlines why this is not necessarily a good idea. And he would actually drop some nugget that made some sense. For instance, he'd say, if we sign a black ball player mm. from the Negro Leagues, we will put the Negro Leagues out of business. Well, okay. he's absolutely right. right. That was going to be the byproduct of this. But in the same voice, he said, well, you know, they lack the faculties to play in our league. Now, <laughs> I don't know when you had to be a Rhodes Scholar to play, to play baseball, but that was the prevailing mindset. But then as you delve deeper into the letter, you get to the crux of this thing. In 1945 alone, the New York Yankees made over $100,000 off Negro League. They were renting Yankee Stadium. They were oh. renting Bear Stadium across the river in Newark. They were renting Blue Stadium here in Kansas City, their minor league affiliate. They're in no hurry to see integration because they didn't want to lose that $100,000, pretty good money today, but $100,000 in 1945. And man, you didn't have to do very much to get that money. You just signed on the dotted line. 
and got out the way. So and, literally, and so you can see why they're in no hurry. One of the most important advancements when it comes to uh, equality in this country was almost uh, not, it almost didn't happen because a landlord wanted to make sure the tenants had to pay rent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. The, the, the thought when, of that. <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to the twenties and thirties, you mentioned um and again we'll get up to more modern times at some point here, but why wasn't there any economic bat uh you know backing uh for the Negro Leagues? Why didn't any of these, you know, we talk about systemic racism, corporate racism, a lot of things are done under the guise of economics and that kind of washes the hand um when it comes to uh decisions that are being made through bigotry, why wasn't there advertising if the stands were full and, you know, people need to eat hot dogs and drink, yes. uh, you know, yes. these are just things that everyone does. Yeah. Well, why wasn't there advertising? Well, they had it, they had it, but it wasn't as prolific as major league baseball. And, and when you had that governing body, like major league baseball, see the thing that they had was their own stadiums, hmm. the Negro league owners. It was only a handful of Negro league owners, but eventually have their own stadiums. Mm. So what you saw were the Negro League teams renting the ballpark from the Major League teams. And the Major League teams were getting a percentage of the gate and likely all of the concession. And that's oh. why we talk about the fact that they were in no hurry to see Negro League baseball fold because there were a number of teams that would lose a, a very vital source of revenue as a result of it. But the irony of it was many of these Negro League teams were going into their stadiums filling up their ballparks, outdrawing right. those major league teams. And of course, eating, drinking, it is Same uh, thing we do monetized. Yeah, monetized, again, systemic. This is a monetized, <laughs> this is why systemic issues exist because people make a lot of money off of a status quo that doesn't benefit everyone. Yeah, no, and that's exactly what we saw. Now, there was... Negro League owners who were quite successful. Yeah. And they were making money in this game. But there are a lot of owners who did, would struggle from time to time to keep those teams afloat. And so you needed to do what was necessary to keep them. Whereas Major League Baseball had a much solid financial foundation mm -hmm. than the Negro Leagues by and large. And that's why I say that's really the only, when we talk about just sheer talent, man, the Negro Leagues wouldn't take a backseat to any league. Right. You know, you take these groups of players and, and if you wanted to just look at it from a more contemporary standpoint, when I tell folks and a lot of my visitors don't know this when they come here. Willie Mays comes out of the Negro Leagues. Henry Aaron comes out of the right. Negro Leagues. Ernie Banks, Roy Campanella. These are some of the greatest stars in Major League Baseball yes. history. They all come out of the Negro Leagues. They were young stars in the Negro Leagues who became some of the greatest players in Major League Baseball history. Willie Mays talks from the context of it got easier for him when he got to the Major League. Man, <laughs> the Negro Leagues, man, you, you know, it was, number one, he's 17 years old when he goes to the Birmingham Black Barons. Can you imagine 17 years old and you're competing against grown men? Right. Yeah, yeah, and you're competing against grown men, and he's holding his own. So by the time he gets to the major league, that was basically him cutting his teeth and being prepared. Man, he was ready for anything that the major leagues had to bring at him because he had seen it all by that time in the Negro League. Right. When it comes to Jackie Robinson, obviously he's had movies made uh, after him. He's almost a folklore hero uh, at this point, and rightfully so. 
But do you, can you give us any insight into a baseball player that came from the Negro Leagues that wasn't Jackie Robinson? Maybe they weren't as great as he was. What's the what's the struggle? Because we know Jackie's struggle. It's uh, it's very well, you know, uh, accounted for. It's yeah. documented. But it, can you just talk about like what's what's a normal? What's you know your average baseball player? He's getting pulled up to the major leagues. He's a black man, <laughs> and uh, maybe he's not quite as prolific as Jackie Robinson. Well, and, and it's really interesting because what I have to remind our visitors all the time is Jackie Robinson was not the best player in the Negro Leagues. He was mm. the right player. Yeah, this wasn't just about talent. Mm. Now there were other Negro League players, fellas, who were far better baseball players than Jackie Robinson. And by no stretch is that to disparage Jackie Robinson because Jackie Robinson is one of the greatest athletes in American sports history. Yeah. He was a four sports star at UCLA. There's baseball, four sports? Yes. I didn't even know that. <laughs> baseball was his weakest sport. Oh, my God. Was he playing water polo? What were the other three? <laughs> Basketball, <laughs> football, and track. And some say an even better tennis player. So oh there was God. absolutely nothing that Jackie Robinson couldn't do. But again, can you imagine it? Now, he's a Hall of Famer. Right. And baseball is his weakest sport. And there were other Negro Leaguers who were far <laughs> superior baseball players to Jackie Robinson. But he was the right man to be the first. Why was he the right man? Because for me, he had what I like to refer to as the intangibles that better prepared him to deal with the immense racial hatred that he would be confronted with. Yeah. He had been a celebrated collegiate, an all-American football player at UCLA. So he had a little cachet surrounding him. He is college educated. Mm -hmm. He had served in the military. He was disciplined. He would become married to the beautiful Rachel Robinson. He was stable. Mm -hmm. All of those attributes would be called upon to deal with the racial hatred that he would be confronted with. I remind our guests all the time, man, when he walked out on the field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers, he was called everything under the sun, or as my mother would say, but a child of God when he walked <laughs> out there on that field. <laughs> it was tough. And so some of those yeah. other Negro leaguers who had been so acclimated to segregation, yeah. they couldn't have handled that. So had you thrown a black cat on the field when Willie Wells walked out on the field, his natural instinct would have been pick that black cat up, throw it right back where it came from. But then what's going to happen? The naysayers would have all said, see, I told you they, they couldn't handle it. Unhinged. But if Jackie can't yeah. play, they were going to say, see, I told you they weren't good enough to play in our league. So Ricky had a difficult task of identifying the right guy because failure is not an option on either side of the equation. Yeah. What an unbelievably tricky tightrope to walk. Yes, it is. Or yeah. it was. Yeah, absolutely. So he had to check off, to, he had to basically nullify people's racism. So he'd be like, oh, exactly. black people can't talk. Well, okay, exactly. never mind. They can't, uh, <laughs> go down the they can't handle themselves. <laughs> oh, never mind. Yeah, no, he had yeah. to defy all of the stereotypical depictions of those black athletes. Yeah. And, and that's why it was so important. You know, so Jackie Robinson, who had gone to Pasadena City College and UCLA. Now, there was this prevailing mindset that we weren't smart enough to play in the major leagues. 
He, he was likely the most intellectual being in the Dodger dugout. I'm not sure there had been another Dodger that stepped foot on a college campus. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, you know, it's not a, um, it is not that far gone of a idea. I remember, you know, I'm a big NFL fan in the 90s with black quarterbacks. Can Absolutely. they do it? Is it possible? Absolutely. And of yes. course, as we've seen, not only can they do it, um, but they can excel uh, when doing it. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. When it comes to the sport of baseball, Bob Kendrick here, he's the president of the Negro League Museum in Missouri. Uh, If you're in Kansas City, go check it out. Please, Um, come see us. When it comes to the importance of the sport of baseball in all of this story, baseball being America's pastime, Mm -hmm. it's never going anywhere. I love, I'm actually just starting to fall in love with the game of baseball, to be honest. I'm 40, so I have to by law. (laughs) Um, What do you think the significance of desegregation, civil rights, and the fact that baseball is the sport that is kind of taking this head on as, Mm -hmm. of course, again, baseball being uh, admired by all Americans, but that also includes many uh, that may may have bigoted thoughts? Yeah, no, it led led the way. It led the way. And that's why we talk about this story from three key themes. This is an amazing story that helps people understand the importance of economic empowerment Mm -hmm. an unprecedented level of leadership and ultimately the social advancement of our country. See, we make the bold assertion here that Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier wasn't just a part of the civil rights movement. It was the beginning of the civil rights movement in this country. This is 1947. This is well before those more noted civil rights occurrences. So this is before Brown versus the Board of Education. This is before Rosa Parks' refusal to move to the back of the bus. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as my dear friend, the late great Buck O'Neill, would so eloquently say, was a sophomore at Morehouse College when Robinson signed his contract to play in the Dodgers organization. Our very own President Truman would not integrate the armed forces until a year after Jackie. So for all intensive purposes, this is what started the ball of social progress rolling in our country, baseball. And our country literally jumped on the coattail of baseball. And so while baseball itself had been vilified for not allowing Blacks to play, Mm. when it opened its door, our country followed suit. But it goes back to what you just said. It speaks to the reverence that baseball held and to a large extent, still holds in our society. It is still our national pastime. Right. 
Yeah. And I think there is something so significant about, you know, football is a sport where you're masked. You're like, you're, you're, you're playing <laughs> under the shield of the NFL and you're playing <laughs> under the brand. And so people will say, I don't root for the player. I root for the team, whatever. Baseball is a sport where it's very intimate. You have a lot of time with these players. Games can go for five freaking hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's something about the intimacy of one man versus another man, the defensive pitcher, the offensive batter. And you really do have to sort of take in that person's entity. And I wonder if that didn't play a role as well when you did have people going. And, you know, we hear the stories of, you know, young kids going up to black people, grabbing, rubbing their skin, be like, does mm -hmm. it come off? Mm -hmm. All of these different mythos and, and, um, you know, whether they be for fear mongering or pure ignorance, um, uh, you know, whatever and it might be. And sometimes just plain old curiosity. Plain old curiosity, just absolutely. Plain old curiosity because Buck O'Neill would talk about, particularly when they went west, they're barnstorming west. And, and they would go into some of these towns in Idaho, Montana, places like that where they had not seen a black person. And that a kid would come up to them and rub to see if it was coming off. Right. And, and that wasn't you know, racism, it was straight up curiosity, you know? And, and so it is really interesting when we look at the dynamics of this story and the importance that base, I'm just one that subscribes to the belief that if you know the history of baseball, you essentially know the history of this country. Right. But the Negro Leagues are an important part of that history. And that, that story had really not been touted very much until this museum emerged in 1990 to start that quest of making sure that their legacy played on. And then you touched on something else that I think is so important when we think about our sport. It is by far the most romanticized sport of mm -hmm. them all. We measure periods in our lives mm -hmm. by this game. And for us, just last week, we launched a what I think is a very cool campaign called My Baseball Memory, mm. where we have partnered with It's Time by Biogen and ASI to have people share their most precious memory around this game. Yeah, Most of us have one. Whether we played it or not, we've got a, a precious memory around this game. And it, for us, it was twofold to help celebrate memory and to also help people become aware of the early stages of Alzheimer's disease mm. and mild cognitive impairment, MCI. But what better way to do it than having people share their precious memory yeah. as a way to help people understand that memories are just that, precious. For me, yeah. it was walking Henry Aaron through this museum. Oh, wow. man, it won't, get wow. any, no, it won't get any better than that. Henry Aaron is my all-time favorite baseball player yeah. and my childhood idol as a kid growing up in tiny Crawfordville, Georgia, town of 500 people, just east of Atlanta, west of Augusta. And the year was 1999. Wow. And they were celebrating the 25th anniversary of Mr. Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's record. Ooh. Now, sadly, it took him 25 years before he was finally able to exhale and really celebrate what many thought to be the most prestigious record, sports record of all time. Why Because of all the death threats. You know, he was oh. getting death threats at that yeah. time. His family is in hiding. He got nearly a million pieces of hate mail 
1973 and 1974 because this for, black for, man for in the deep south well, he was broke about the record break, he yeah, didn't he about to break Ruth's record yeah. and people did not like that what was he supposed to do <laughs> take a spaghetti <laughs> string out there every time he went to bed he just broke the hey, record man. I'll tell you what. Maybe Babe Ruth wasn't so freaking hammered, which is, I mean. <laughs> the man ate a lot of hot dogs. Well, he has to, he has to stay nitrated. He had no idea if he's going to make it around the bases when he hit record home run 715. And you remember the two kids that ran out on the field? Yeah. They ran out to celebrate with him. Yeah. But, you know, he, you know, his bodyguard was armed. And he tells a story that his bodyguard had a binocular case you know, around his neck. In the case was a snub-nosed 38 revolver. Right. And, and of course, there were snipers in the ballpark because of all the threats that he had been getting. So when these kids mm -hmm. run out on the field, if someone had been trigger happy, oh my God. we're talking about one of the most special moments yeah. in sports history could have ended in complete tragedy. They were just running on the field to celebrate with the hammer. And there's something and beautiful about that. Absolutely, um, it was. Yeah. yeah. And, and so to walk him through that museum. Yeah. And, and we have this picture of him, guys. And, <laughs> and the picture of him, he's 18 years old. Aww. He's standing at the train station in Mobile, Alabama, 1952, <laughs> about to go leave home to join a team called the Indianapolis Clowns. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at that time, the hammer was a skinny, cross-handed hitting shortstop. So in the case of Mr. Aaron, he was a right-hand hitter who was hitting with his left hand on top. That's unorthodox. Right. The fear is that you would break your wrist hitting in that manner. Well, Henry Aaron is knocking the cover off the baseball in a highly unorthodox fashion. When he gets to the clowns, they put the right hand on top and the rest, as they say, is history. He was shortly after discovered by the Boston Braves, who would become the Milwaukee Braves, who, of course, would become the Atlanta Braves. Wow. Henry Aaron will go down in this sport as one of his all-time greatest players. And here I am walking my childhood idol That's through awesome. the Negro Leagues Museum. And then after we finish, he does a fireside chat. And after oh. that, we go up to the mezzanine level of the gym theater, right across the street from the museum. Yeah. And I sit down over a platter of Gates barbecue ribs Woo. with mm. my childhood idol, Hey, man, I'm telling you now, it won't ever get any better than that. <laughs> that is incredible. You know, it's so interesting you mention, um, I had no idea how serious these death threats were, and it's really unfortunate they robbed 25 years of this man's um, happiness because he couldn't celebrate and he should have been celebrated immediately. Uh, you see the image of him running mm -hmm. the bases with the children. We had a chance to interview Ken Burns recently talking about Muhammad oh, yeah. Ali in the That's new documentary. Uh, Ken Burns is just fantastic. And He's Muhammad amazing, Ali, man. That, yeah, he is just a magical man. I wish man. you would have had me on before you had Ken because once Ken come on, Ain't nothing I can say that makes it <laughs> <sense>. <He's> so eloquent. <laughs> yeah, he's just a wonderful man. But, you know, some of those iconic stills that we saw of Muhammad Ali, and you look at them now and they're in kids' dorms rooms and, 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 and bedrooms, and rightfully so. Same thing with the Hank Aaron picture. But I guess it's just difficult to really – I almost wish we had like a historical scratch and sniff. So you could like scratch and be like, <laughs> this is what the emotion actually was though. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. for me, and I think for a lot of us, we see these as just triumphant moments, right? It's like, wow, all right, everything is going great. Look at this. Look at this record-breaking uh, moment. But in reality, 
it was so much more complex than that and truly dangerous. And I guess that's one of the areas where I wanted to talk to you about stress and yeah. how much more difficult do you think it was, uh, you know, for for uh, African Americans at this Tremendous. time to, to deal with to deal with the social aspect, and then also yeah. they got to play the freaking game. Gotta play. No. You got to play, and you think about this episode that we're talking about with Henry Aaron. That's twenty seven years after Jackie Robinson has broken the color barrier, mm. and Hen- Henry yeah. Aaron is still going through that same level of hate and vitriol that welcomed Jackie Robinson into the major league. And you almost wonder if it's 27 years before that. You almost wonder if it's more because people stew and they're like, yeah, we we let Jackie in and now look, Babe Ruth's record's gone. We told you this was going to happen. And and how dare this black man in the deep South break this legendary ball player in Ruth. You know, Ruth is, Ruth is in many ways the face of what major league baseball was. Mm-hmm. And uh, this just did not sit well. And so, and, and if you recall this story, Henry Aaron came into the 74 season, you know, basically one home run shy, two home runs shy of breaking the record. Yeah. So he had to go the entire offseason. The entire offseason, man. You don't know. You're looking over your shoulder. You don't know if this stuff is real or not. But I can tell you, for a guy like Henry Aaron, he had seen in his time John F. Kennedy assassinated, yeah. Martin Luther King assassinated, mm. Malcolm X assassinated. Mm. And, and so in the minds of a black man in the Deep South, there were no idle death threats. This is very real. And so can you imagine what it was like that offseason? Where you got everywhere you're going, you looking over your shoulder, man. You know how you talk about stress. And and then to get into the 74 season, and I I do a podcast called Black Diamonds, Untold Stories of the Negro League. And and recently I had Dusty Baker, uh, the manager of the Houston Astros now, and a teammate of the Hammer when that all took place. And he says what essentially what happened was Henry Aaron had a room that he stayed in and a room that, you know, had his name on it uh, so that he could basically avoid everything and try to keep guys off of his trail. And Dusty Baker and a player named Ralph Gar were assigned to Mr. Aaron to try and keep him upbeat. They would entertain him. And, you know, to, you know try. What are you Mr. guys Aaron, doing for me? Yeah, yeah, Jeez, yeah. what are my friends here for? <laughs> so Mr. Aaron loved to laugh. And so they got the assignment of trying to entertain the hammer during this very tumultuous time. But, you know, you touched on something for all of those players who transitioned from the Negro Leagues into the major leagues. They were all welcomed that way. We talk about Jackie Robinson and we know his story. Larry Doby would integrate the American League just a few weeks after Jackie. Mm he went through the same amount of hate, maybe even more because he's in the American League. Those cities were not nearly as liberal as those National League cities, and the national media was following Jackie. They weren't paying Larry Doby very much attention. Larry yeah. Doby, fellas, was 23 years old. He was just a baby yeah. thrown into a powder keg of racism, and yet he handled himself with the same grace class and dignity that Jackie did. Well, he had the exact same pedigree that Jackie had. 
outstanding baseball player. He was college educated, served in the military. So he had the same pedigree. And and so all these players were thrust into an environment where really no one wanted them to be there. So it wasn't like they were being welcomed with open arms. And, And so you're right. They had to deal with the social pressure. And then you had to go out and perform. And when you went out to perform, you were literally carrying an entire race of people on your shoulders. Right. Yeah, when Jackie Robinson walked out on that field, he was carrying 21 million Black folks on his back because mm-hmm. had he failed, an entire race of people would have failed. That's an enormous amount of pressure for any one man to have to bear. And he did it. And the others who subsequently followed they did it as well. They knew they had to be good. And, and I think there was a level of disappointment if they didn't stick. But oftentimes they didn't stick. It had nothing to do with talent. Right. You know, you mentioned Larry Doby. I hadn't heard that name before. Um, would you say he's one of the unsung heroes that oh. you would like to see explored a little bit more? Because Well, and, and we're doing it now. We're yeah. telling his story in a much broader capacity with a new exhibit that we have here called Barrier Breakers. Mm. And then we're creating a new traveling version of that exhibit, which will chronicle all of the players who broke their respective major league teams' color barriers from Jackie Robinson joining Brooklyn in 1947 through Elijah Pumpsy Green being the last to complete the integration cycle, believe it or not, 12 years later with the Boston Red Sox. And so we tell all of their stories. You know, it's almost a trivia question that in 1947, there were five guys who go to the major leagues in 1947. Now, we all know know the story of Jackie Robinson. But as you mentioned, few know Larry Doby. And the other three are essentially the answers to a trivia question. Hank Thompson, Willard Brown, and Dan Bankhead. They all get the call up in 1947. But we essentially remember Jackie Robinson. And Jackie Robinson, for black folks, his breaking of the color barrier was equivalent to Neil Armstrong being the first man to land on the moon. You're right. right. Well, unfortunately, Larry Doby is our Buzz Aldrin. See, nobody ever <laughs> gives Buzz any love. Buzz gets no love, man. You I know, know he did the same thing. He was just number two. <laughs> I mean, those are just fantastic uh, stories when it comes to Larry Doby. Can you maybe give us just one little tidbit of, of his life? Because I think it is so important to remember not just the um, not just the mainstream people that we hear about, because it is all it takes all of it takes all of us. And for mm-hmm. someone like Larry Doby, who I don't know much about at all, you're just totally you're you're informing me for the first time, which is what you do, <laughs> Bob Kendricks. Check out the museum. <laughs> Uh, what was one of what was an aspect of his life or of his trajectory that that you find to be unique and you wish maybe people well, would talk about a little bit more? Well, number one, he never played a day in the minor leagues. Mm. He went straight from Effa Manley's Newark Eagles, Effa Manley, female owner in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, she sold Larry Doby to Bill Vec. And Doby joins the Cleveland Indians in 1947. Wasn't exactly welcome with open arms, as he would recount when he walked into the locker room in Cleveland. No one would shake his hand. No one wanted to warm up with him on the field. You know, that's your welcome to the major leagues. 
And so he didn't get a lot of playing time. He came, he comes up in July of 1947. Yeah. The very next year, Larry Doby and Satchel Paige, the old man, yeah. would lead the Cleveland Indians to the World Series title. Nice. As a matter of fact, my Cleveland fans get tired of hearing me say this. It was the last time Cleveland won the World Series was 1948, led by Larry <laughs> Doby and Satchel Paige. They win the World Series. And so Larry Doby would also become a groundbreaking manager in baseball. Wasn't the first. Nice. Uh, obviously, that distinction belongs to Frank Robinson. But he was a very special guy. You know, smart, tremendous athlete. You know, had star quality written all over. As I would say, Hollywood, good looks. You know, everything that you had and needed to be a star, Larry Doby had it. Well, hopefully and, not Hollywood good looks, because that means you're five foot seven. Have you seen <laughs> an actor in real life, dude? Very short. It's Very insane. Short. Mm-hmm. Good Lord. I thought they were men. And then you look at them, you're like, you're all head. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. And thank you so much for t- well, just a little bit more time if we can, because I just think. This, oh, and, man, no, no, no. I'm good. Uh, it's just so fascinating. Do you think um, so when, when it comes to Larry Doby, Jackie Robinson, all these people, they're out there, they're doing what they do. Um, they're absorbing so much of um, the chaos and, and they're they're changing the world so much, which is never easy to do. Do you think that they understood at that moment? just how significant their history was going to be? Or did they slowly sort of realize it as their narrative and their stories never went away as people continued to sort of, you know, honor them, Jackie Robinson, of course. And of course we need to honor uh, people like Larry Larry Doby more. But do you think that uh, specifically, I guess, in the context of Jackie Robinson, that he was beginning, that he understood by the end, just how powerful all of this was, or is it even possible I asked his daughter, Sharon, if she thought her father really knew the levity, the weight that he was about to carry. Because in my mind, there is no way you can completely understand what you were about to sign up for. And Yeah. uh, Yeah, I just don't know if it was humanly possible to truly understand, number one, that you were going to be welcome with this level of hate and vitriol, but then that the opposite side of it, that an entire race of people were depending on you. Right. You know, and and that's exactly the case with, with Jackie and those early pioneers, but particularly Jackie Robinson. You know, as I mentioned, 21 million black folks, they standing on the shoulders, man. 
Yeah, they're standing on his shoulders. This is what we had been waiting for, even at the detriment of the Negro Leagues. Because I honestly don't know if Black folks understood what we were losing when we lost the Negro Leagues. But this was this moment in time that we had been waiting for because I think in the minds of many, it started to chip away at this notion of superiority. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that you weren't capable of playing a game. We have a wonderful poster that we sell here at the museum. And the headline on the poster says, 440 feet is 440 feet, no matter what color your skin is. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the mm-hmm. notion that color could dictate whether a guy could play this game, as we know, is absurd. Yeah. But that was the, the mindset. So I don't think it was remotely possible that he could fully grasp what he was about to, to take on when he took on his pioneering role. Right. In 440 feet, of course, it's impossible to measure how much um, change uh, can happen within that, within, within, those, within those parameters. Absolutely. Because gosh knows Absolutely. Uh, that a lot was. When it comes to, you know, you mentioned a little bit on... Um, on Hank Aaron in the uh, 70s, they're breaking Babe Ruth's record. There was death threats. We, we've spoken with a lot of people who are with the CIA, John Kiriuk, uh, who kind of went against the CIA. He was a CIA operative. And we talk a little bit about, you know, the CIA or uh, the powers that be, the FBI. They were spying on, you know, different social, mm-hmm. you know, Stokely Carmichael, different oh, groups of people. Do, do you, is there a sense that there was something more going on than just sports. What was Hank Aaron worried about, you know, secret assassinations? I mean, how we, I think it's pretty well safe to say now MLK was probably killed by um, the mm-hmm. government in yes. many ways, right? A yeah. uh, useful idiot perhaps uh, was able to pull the trigger, but nonetheless, the powers that be pulled the, pulled mm-hmm. the, uh, the trigger in many ways. Also, was there a concern that this thing was so systemic and so dangerous that even the most powerful echelons of the U.S. government may have a reason to end somebody's life. You know, I, I don't think it was quite to that extreme as we saw in the case of King or certainly have, you know, kind of come to understand that there was some deep-rooted stuff yeah. that ultimately led to King's demise or to Malcolm X's demise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe even in the lights of John F. Kennedy, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I don't think it was to that degree. Okay. I think you just had a societal issue here where there were those who were just absolutely unhappy. They were just unhappy. And unlike those fans who came to boo Jackie, as Buck O'Neill would say, those really weren't baseball fans. They were haters. They were people who had likely never even gone to a baseball game. They came especially to hurl these insults and heckle Jackie and say these mean-spirited it's things. It's the game within the game, honey. Okay, Exa- it's the game yeah, within yeah, the game. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, well, for me, the most poignant scene in the film 42, mm-hmm. the most poignant scene in the film was when the father and son are at the game and the father starts to say these nasty things and what happens? the son starts saying the exact same thing. So now you're building this hate or you're teaching this hate. And so this stuff kind of manifested itself. And so, but the folks who were so fearful of what Mr. Aaron was about to accomplish, a lot of these were baseball fans. They just could not accept the idea 
that this black man was going to break this baseball icon's record, mm -hmm. and it just did not sit well with them. Now, did that breed some of the other contempt around those who kind of live on hate? Of course it did. Sure. Yeah, so no, there's no question. That, that, that absolutely added some gasoline on the fire for sure. And then I suppose also kind of in – from a uh, white person perspective, um, I guess it was good for white people to also hear white people sling racial slurs with their own ears and see it with their own eyes. So then you can't do the thing. I mean, there's a reason the Klan hides under hoods. People yeah. didn't necessarily um, express all of the bigotry or hatred they had in their heart, maybe because there wasn't a, a black person to expose that bigotry or whatever yeah, it might be. Yeah. So I wonder if that didn't also help white people understand what people were going through because they get to see it with their own eyes. And it must've been unnerving to be like, what the, f what is happening? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just a cool dude, man. Why are you yelling at this dude? Like, what yeah, the fuck, dude, yeah. this is really, this yeah. looks really bad. Yeah, exactly. So maybe it, it helped expose some of that. Maybe it was hidden. But if, you know, I go back to the great Dodger broadcast of Vin Scully's call of Aaron's home run. And that stadium there, old Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta, <laughs> was full. And as he would so beautifully describe, there was a black man getting a standing ovation from mm. white folks in the Deep South. So it wasn't that everybody right. harbored that hate. As my friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill would say, and we know this to be true, there have always been and always will be more good people than bad people. Mm -hmm. And it's just the fact that so many of those good people sat idly. Mm -hmm. And so what you talked about is absolutely true. Now this is in your face. You are witnessing this. So it's not somebody complaining. Right. You know, it, it ain't, ain't complaining. And, and, you know, even when we talk about this story and we talk about this story and we treat this story here at the Negro Leagues Museum for exactly what it was, a celebration. Yeah. You know, a lot of people think that you're going to come here and be introduced to a very sad, somber kind of story because you understand that this story is anchored against the ugliness of American segregation, a horrible chapter in this country's history. Mm -hmm. But again, out of segregation emerged this wonderful story of triumph and conquest. And so we treat it for exactly what it, it really is. It's a celebration but it's the celebration of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. And, and that is what has governed not only this story, but the early transition of those black and brown players who would eventually move into the major leagues and help invoke change, not only in our sport, but more importantly, in our country. You know, it reminds me, I just almost feel like an M. Night Shyamalan movie where let's pretend segregation never ended and I'm going to go watch baseball tonight. I would love to see the players if they weren't allowed to be replaced, if it was like only the white players were allowed to play right now. Baseball, I mean, it wouldn't, it's just, it's, it would be horrific, <laughs> which is not be nearly as good. When sometimes when I'm in the museum, I challenge my guests to think about what would baseball have been without Robinson, without Henry Aaron, without Willie Mays, without Ernie Banks, without Roy Campanella. Deion without, Sanders. Without Roberto Clemente, <laughs> without Bob Gibson. Can you imagine our sport 
without those great stars. And, and it goes back to what you said. If you can, you could imagine what it was like before 1947. They didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. And that's why I say, and I say this with no level of uncertainty, had the doors opened sooner, the record books would be entirely different. Our game would have been entirely different. The level of achievement and the style of play, the level of play would have increased just as it did after 1947. One of the most amazing facts that I think helps people truly understand just how impactful the Negro Leagues were on Major League Baseball from 1949 through 1959, nine of 11 National League most valuable players were former Negro League stars. Wow. Yeah. Now, we're not even talking about rookies of the year. Now, when you talk about rookies of the year, we're talking about <laughs> most valuable players, MVPs. So yeah. it had an immediate impact. It helped change this game and it opened up the doors for others to now dream of playing the game at that major league level. But like I said, it came, that progress came at a cost. It came at a cost. It put the Negro Leagues out of business. Right. And in, in so many ways, it led to an economic decline in the African-American community. You see, wherever you had successful black baseball, you typically had thriving black economies. And to a great extent, Black economy never recovered from losing the Negro Leagues. Is there a way to is there a way to kind of retroactively address that? We we were talking recently in an episode. There's a beach here, Bryan Beach. Uh, in the 1920s, it was a Black-owned beach. It was a Black-owned resort. It was meant to uh, you know be there for Black families to go vacation. Uh, on the beach, and apparently a bunch of racist clans members came in there, literally burnt the damn thing down, scared everyone away, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. The state or the city, I believe it was the state of California, yes. uh, just gave it back, and now they're going to be paying rent uh, to the family. Is there any way to to sort of um, sort of give a little bit of grace to those industries and to those uh, to those entities that that, as you mentioned, were sort of dead on the table before they had a the chance to run because of the integration. Is there any aspect of, of I suppose, reparations is a term that's often used, but <laughs> but I, I don't know if that's necessarily even the best term to use in this yeah, case. Yeah. Uh, is there any way to preserve those legacies or to kind of give back to those uh, beginnings of what became the greats of Major League Baseball? Yeah, you know, I certainly hope so. I don't know what they are. I won't even pretend, you know, what we're doing here when we built the Negro Leagues Museum where we operate historic 18th and Vine. 18th and Vine in its heyday was as recognized street cross-section man as there was anywhere in the world yeah. because you had that intrinsic mixture of jazz and baseball radiating from this one street corner. And so, so it was fun. the epicenter of Black life in Kansas City. Yeah, And when... The monarchs died and went away. We saw this community also start to decline because by that time, integration had become paramount. So now all of a sudden, those small black businesses that had basically emerged because of need, see, they were needed. Right. And, and so, but Negro Leagues Baseball brought them a built-in clientele 
that led those businesses to their economic heights. Well, with integration, now you had greater access to places that you couldn't go to once upon a time. And, and for me, it's a far more deeper sociological story than perhaps this old feeble mind from Crawfordville, Georgia could ever <laughs> even imagine to comprehend. I don't have the ability to really comprehend and articulate it uh, because it's that deep. I mean, it's it's a it's a beyond an eight sided die. It's an eight sided die in in a in a in a room surrounded by mirrors. I mean, because you think about obviously we want a nation that isn't segregated, but then because we're we're striving for um, a more perfect union, now we're also decimating a group of people that we or that yeah. we are attempting to help, and so on and so forth. And of course, that's why when we did interview Ken Burns, he was talking about Muhammad Ali not necessarily against segregation in mm-hmm. in in that sense because of that because of that idea but that makes it so it's just so much more complex it really of course is. as we it, celebrate it really, you know indigenous really people's is. day as opposed to columbus day uh, because of the narrative that we hear columbus he just he came over here and found some he found a land it happened to be full of other people and he we're didn't even find this people. land <laughs> <laughs> but so we're trying to like we're trying to uh, bring nuance to history through sport, which is the best way to do it. But it it is complex. It, it is very complex. And, uh, you know, it's, we are part of an effort to revitalize this area. Yeah. We are trying to bring life back to an area. And you saw or have seen these urban areas throughout this country fall into great decline. And uh, we built a museum. And that's not usually the way that you try to revitalize an area with a museum. But we felt an inherent responsibility to shoulder that load to try and resurrect this area that had once upon a time been so proud and prominent. Because as, you know, I remind people that in Kansas City during that era of segregation, Black folks could only live within a 13-block radius here in this city. Wow could only live within that 13-block radius. But I also remind them that within those 13 blocks, you had everything you mm-hmm. needed. As a matter of fact, you had so much of it that others were coming in to get it, <laughs> you know, because the music scene was abundant. It was live and well here in Kansas City. A jazz right. artist could get a gig in Kansas City when they couldn't get a gig anywhere else. Right. You could get one in Kansas City. And this area where the museum operates was right at the forefront of it. I'll never forget a story that Buck O'Neill tells. And he said, the Monarchs had played a game here in Kansas City on a Saturday and they were going to go home, get cleaned up, and they were going to meet at a nightclub here called the Subway. Mm-hmm. Well, it was called the Subway because the club was actually beneath street level. And so Buck says he and the guys are sitting around the table sipping on a little tea <laughs> when in walks a kid, got a horn over his shoulder, he wants to blow. Everybody said, well, let him blow. <laughs> well, Buck says the kid starts making some noises out of this horn they'd never heard before. But you had to pay attention. That kid was 17-year-old Charlie Yardbird Parker. Wow. You know, so that's the kind <laughs> of star power that we're talking about that's that crazy. was part of these experiences. You know, and so when you walk these streets out in front of this museum, man, you walk in the same streets that Count Basie, Duke Ellington, uh, Lionel Hampton, Lena Horne, 
Satchel Page, Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson, That's Buck awesome. O'Neill, they all walk these very same streets. That's awesome. What a great American story. Uh, Bob Kendrick keeping the spirit of the Negro League alive, which is just incredible. Uh, Travis and Fernando, did you guys have any questions or? Um, yes. So, Mr. Mr. Hendrick, I, I know you're a historian. So my Girl, question, really. my, my history teacher rolled over in his grave. <laughs> oh my in. God. The fact I'm even historian. talking to you, all of my teachers are like, what did we do wrong? But, well, you're a curator. Of, Cause they hated me. Well, you're a curator of history. So I want to ask about uh, uh, how that applies to now. We know segregation has ended in sports. That's obvious, but has the, the racism has the expectations on people of color changed. And I asked that, for example, not necessarily baseball, but Tiger Woods. In golf, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the expectation mm-hmm. of Tiger Woods or uh, Michael Phelps versus uh, Shakiri Richardson about, mm-hmm. you know, pot smoking. Do you yeah, still feel yeah. that the people of color are held to a different standard? Please. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you just you just indicated two great examples yeah. of, of why people of color are still held to to higher standards and higher expectations when the same issues may take place. And, and mm-hmm. so there's still this fight. There's still this fight in sports. And, you know, it, our, our sports, our country have made great strides. There's still a lot of work left to do. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine when young people walk into the Negro Leagues Museum and they're being introduced to segregation for the very first time, mm-hmm. it blows them away. They can't even imagine that our country was that backwards. They can't even imagine that it operated that way. And segregation summarized through the eyes of a child is summarized very simply. That was dumb. (laughs) It was was dumb. And, and it, but it was the way that our country was. And it's important that we allow our children to look back in time if they are to appreciate how far we've come. But I think just as importantly, y'all to empower our young people to take us where we still yet need to go in the future. We still have a lot of work left to do. Because these things continue to rear their ugly heads, whether it's in sports or in society. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. no no arena has galvanized us, though, like sports has. Absolutely. And baseball was at the forefront of that. So does it still have some social ills? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. And we will continue to try and make the necessary strides to grow and become better as a result of. Yeah. But there's still work to do. And, and people of color are still certainly held to a greater standard, I believe. That is why you still find very few black quarterbacks because you still deal with that mindset. Absolutely. When they are described, they are described as great athletes. You know, they, you know, they're great athletes playing quarterback, you know, because there's still kind of a little bit of that, well, you know, the game has evolved now and we need some guys that can run and that kind of thing. But they're, they, the belief that, well, maybe they're not smart enough to play this game. Yeah. Uh, played it. A lot of that carried over from the Negro Leagues. We talk about it from the standpoint that you saw very few black catchers in Major League Baseball because that was the cerebral position. Mm. Uh-huh. Very few black pitchers, very few black shortstops. Those were the cerebral positions in our game. And uh, so that that prevailing belief that we weren't smart enough 
to play those positions. The catching position is the closest to the manager. It Well, it's not quite as much so today because the managers are calling the game from the dugout. The right. catchers really don't have that level of responsibility uh, as great as they once did. And, and so, but what you saw was a lot of major league catchers would eventually become managers in major league. But you know what? You saw the same thing happen in the Negro Leagues. The catchers in the Negro Leagues became managers in the Negro Leagues. Right. And, and yet, they very few of them got the opportunity. And, and to this day, you see very few black catchers in the major leagues. Because number one, if they, if they are great athletes, they're not going to let them play the catching position anyway. They're going to be too deemed to be too athletic to play that position. Right. So they're going right. to play the outfield. You know, it's interesting when it comes to, uh, I was thinking about this, when it comes to people's intensity around sports, specifically when it comes to black men and how much they, and of course, black women as well. Um, but in, in the context of uh, what I'm about to say, when it comes to LeBron James, for example, this man was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 16 years old. Mm -hmm. I was literally, literally doing whippets and smoking weed out of an apple when I was 16 years old. <laughs> and I just did that this morning as well. Uh, that's the only way I can eat an apple. <laughs> and then you go through and you, you see his career. You see what he's done with Akron, Ohio. You see him building school, literally built a school. Yep. The man's a goat. And when he left to go to Miami, maybe it wasn't the most cordial way to do it. I don't really give a shit. That's on his managers and agents. You see people burning effigies of him. Mm -hmm. You see people, mm -hmm. people burning his jerseys. And this is just one example. I mean, this right. the way that sports reactions can be, I find to be extremely aggressive, needlessly. It, at the end of the day, it is still just sports, right? It's just sports. But yeah, it but is so fandom, serious. Fandom gets taken to a whole nother level. A whole nother level. And I wonder if that is something that we can work on. And I wonder if that's still the hangover. Of, you know, mm. of, of the uh, stereotypes of, you know, yes, these are black men, but shouldn't he be grateful? Because we hear this all the time. Shouldn't he be grateful? They should. What are they complaining about these millionaires? I'm like, LeBron James has made more money for billionaires. He might become a billionaire, but that man, that that money has trickled all the Absolutely. way down. Absolutely. Uh, uh, absolutely. And I can almost live with the people burning his jersey because that that's a it's a little bit fanatical. But where I have a problem with is what we've seen in recent times with shut up and dribble. Shut up and Shut up and dribble is where I had a problem. To me, that was one of the most racist statements ever uttered. Ever. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable. So that, that's, that's where I have a problem. Shut People up and perform Jersey, for us. They had an allegiance to him being with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He left their beloved Cavaliers. And so, you know, they seemingly forgot all the great things that he had done prior to that. Okay, that, that's fandom. And again, it's a little bit fanatical. Not shut up and dribble, though. No. And this man, you know, has done, like you mentioned, a litany of amazing things yeah. that goes far beyond what the average person will ever be able to give back. Absolutely. And, and he has done it as unassumingly as possible. And instead of being hailed, he's being told to shut up and dribble as if he doesn't have a brain to think with and Absolutely. that his thoughts and his feelings on subject matter matters, but maybe in the minds of others, it does, you know, it's or, almost because know. people can't believe that he could be talented. And when I, um, this is a global uh, statement, people can't understand that someone could be talented at something mm 
that they're not talented at and also be smarter than them. And be, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and that's a little hard sometimes for it to sit in with. with Laura with Ingram folks. sits on her freaking dumpy ass all damn day and talks into a radio. I promise you it's not that hard to talk into a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> promise you. It's much easier than winning a championship with the Cleveland Cavaliers. <laughs> Uh, anyway, well, Travis, it, one final question for yeah. Mr. Mr. Irvine. I mean, in that same vein, I mean, you've done such a great job of um, articulating how sports is a great place to make political statements, right? This is a political show we've covered with Ken Burns, Muhammad Ali's great political statements, the 1968 Olympics. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, like you were talking about burning jerseys, Colin Kaepernick certainly is one that comes to mind right now who literally didn't even speak up. He just took a knee, right? Just took a knee. And um, I almost kind of wonder, were there opportunities for those kind of political statements in the Negro League back well, in the 20s and 30s? Or was just the existence of the league itself the same? There you have mm-hmm. it. There you have it. That, that's exactly what it was. They were activists before we knew what activists were. Because right. their mm-hmm. defiant spirit was that activism. Okay? You will not dictate to me whether I'm good enough to play this game. I will show you. Yeah, and so you won't let me play with you. I create my own. And I remind people that embodies the American spirit, that mindset. That is what the American spirit is all about. Yeah, and and so that's why we talk about that from the standpoint that this story embodies the American spirit, unlike any story in the annals of American history, because that uh, that was that defiancy. And as each of them continued to succeed, it kind of slowly but surely chipped away at the stigma, the stereotypes, you know, and, and, and they just kept at it because, number one, they were good at it. And they wanted everybody else to see how good they were at mm-hmm. it. And, and, and they entertained a lot of people in the process. And interestingly enough, guys, there were a lot of white fans at Negro League games. And, and we were sitting there side by side watching truthfully what many would decree to be the best baseball being played in this country and without question the most entertaining brand of yeah. baseball being played in this country. And, and so you're right. Yeah, there was a spirit of activism. It wasn't what we see now with the marching and those kinds of things, but that defiant spirit that they had there's no question that that was activism in its early stages. Yeah. Wow. And of course, just the power of sport. Um, when a player helps your team win a championship, you don't give a shit what they look well, like. Because exactly you're just like, case. thank so, you, you cry together, and uh, it's just powerful. And, and that's the beauty and innocence of kids. When Jackie Robinson joined the Brooklyn Dodgers, you saw white kids in Brooklyn saying, I'm Jackie Robinson. Because right. they didn't see Jackie Robinson, a black man. They saw Jackie Robinson, a man that could play baseball, and they loved the way he played baseball. And the same thing with all those other players, because our kids, in their innocence, they don't really see color. They just see other kids. I tell people all the time, fellas, we could learn a lot from our children. We're constantly trying to teach our children, but every now and then, maybe we should kind of flip the script and maybe learn and see the world through the innocence of a child. And I think we'd all be a lot better as a result of. I completely agree. Unless it comes to driving. 
I'm not right. going yeah, to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> no, I, that's just a wonderful, wonderful sentiment. Bob Kendrick, if you are around the Kansas City area, check out this museum. It is the uh, the uh, Negro League Baseball yeah. Museum. It is in Kansas City. Um, thank you so much for what you've done. And uh, thank you so much for what you're doing. And this is just such yeah. a great seed to start with when it comes to um, the civil rights uh, conversations, criminal justice. We hit it on criminal justice a lot. I think we all agree that that is, uh, you know, that is an issue that is yeah. facing this country that we need to solve. And we are hopefully uh, working on that. But what a great place to start the conversation uh, through baseball. And, yeah, um, through our pastime. Through our pastime. And, and I hope everyone will join us and share your memory. We want to know what your favorite baseball memory is. Share it if you're on social media. Yep. Share it to the hashtag, my baseball memory. It might be playing baseball in the yard with your dad. My memory is actually horrible. I remember I slid into first base when I was seven, and I didn't know you weren't supposed to slide into first base. <laughs> and they made fun of me. And they are like, you can run past it. And I was like, I thought you had to slide. <laughs> and um, it was basically the most, I, that was the only time I ever got on base. Oh. And I did it wrong. <laughs> okay. So, you know, not everyone was good at baseball. I'm six foot seven. I'm not Aaron Judge. <laughs> But my base. Never forgot that. No, of you course not. It was. Is, it was. That's his baseball memory. You know that's sports. <laughs> some memories are good. Some memories are absolutely embarrassing. <laughs> but that's the power of sport. That's the power of sports, and it helps us remember that memories are indeed precious. And now Even I know you run past first base. You run past it. If you ever right get there, <laughs> Bob Kendrick. All right, there it was. Our conversation with Bob Kendrick. I learned a lot. I thought a lot. And dare I say, we're better off because of it. Oh, yeah. No, it's absolutely fascinating what he pointed out about Jackie Robinson having the weight of 21 million mm-hmm. African-American citizens. Representation. Representation mm-hmm. on his shoulders. And yep. uh, it's a great point. You know, if Jackie Robinson had been less of a ball player, oddly enough, if he hadn't lived up to that moment, yep. um, the civil rights movement could have veered in a completely different direction. God knows. And of course, we also have to remember some of the more unsung heroes like Larry Doby, mm-hmm. uh, a man who doesn't have movies named after him or uh, a, a whole uh, almost folklore, right. uh, you know, like uh, um, sort of under the American people don't have a folklore like understanding mm-hmm. of his legacy. But someone like Larry Doby, I think, also needs to be remembered for how much work they did and um, how they had to fight tooth and nail right. uh, to succeed. And of course, uh, uh, Doby being able to win a championship uh, probably doesn't hurt anything at all. Right. Hopefully no. Cleveland remembers. Hopefully. What really stuck with me was, especially after Travis's question, uh, you know, activism, how these men were activists without, mm-hmm. you know, without a being, without right. protests and without, and that's so important sometimes that what you do exactly is activism and just existing sometimes is activism. And that's why it's important that you know, we exist in these spaces as a person of color. Absolutely. Keep on going forward. Um, Larry Doby, he died in 2003. So that man lived a long, long life. And we, that's all we can do. We got to keep on going forward, keep on fighting for a good cause. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I think things, uh, you know, the, the world is envision the world you want, manifest it. And at some point uh, it will exist. So that's all we can do. And keep telling the story. Absolutely. Keep educating people about how this all began. Absolutely. So if you're in Kansas City or around there, check out the Negro Leagues Museum and uh, say hello to Bob for us. And what a wonderful man. And I hope you all learned something. And if you are watching baseball, have a good time. The the playoffs have been insane. 
Pretty crazy. Been a lot of fun. Been watching some Dodgers ball because I'm out in L.A. So I miss my Mets and Yankees, but the Dodgers, they're doing pretty good. I will point out in one of the wild card games, someone stole home base, and it was the first time a baseball player had done that in a playoff game since Jackie Robinson. No kidding. Oh. 1950s. Wow, he ties it all together. Classic Irvine. Woo. <laughs> all right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back later on this week. Uh, it'll just be Fernando Travis and myself. We'll be blabbing about all the news you have to know because believe it or not, Things are getting crazy. I'm talking robots, people. Oh, I had too much chili. I hope the robots don't start playing baseball. Oh, my God. <laughs> for keeping them out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with you later this week. Hail yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.